If you would, remain standing. And we're going to open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 4 today, is where our text is, uh, beginning in verse 1. But we're actually going to turn, I don't know if you have to turn a page or not, we're going to go a couple of verses back just so we can get the context of where we are here. If you remember the last time uh, Casey was here, we were talking about the baptism of Christ. So we'll pick up at the very last two verses of that and then read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please be seated. So we're starting chapter 4 of Matthew today. We've taken a a good bit of time to go through the first three chapters, and they're very important chapters in here. But the first three chapters cover the vast majority of Jesus' life. Nearly 30 years is covered in those three very short chapters. One thing we have to remember is how do we read Matthew? Because it is not a biography of Jesus. It is not to let us know every detail of his life. So it makes sense that it would focus on Jesus' ministry because there's a purpose in it. Casey reminds us each week that Matthew is a Jew and he's writing to his fellow Jews. And we have to remember, the majority of his fellow Jews, just like today, do not believe in the claims of Jesus or his disciples. They couldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, let alone was the Son of God. So Matthew here, in this gospel, is writing an apology against the objections of the Jews. And I don't want anyone to be confused. We're not talking about apology how most English speakers use it today. We use it in a way that says, I I regret where I acknowledge something that's regretful that I've done to you. I've committed some offense or a failure, and I'm sorry. That's what we consider an apology today. But we're actually taking this from the Greek word apologia, which originally meant a verbal or written defense. It was a reasoned statement or a reasoned argument on a topic. 
This word apologia is used multiple times, but I'll give you two examples here. Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he, he writes, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, an apology, an apologia, to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Paul, when he stood before the Jews in Acts, making a defense for the gospel, said, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense the apology that I now make before you. We have to remember that this is the context of Matthew, especially as we move further and further into the book of Matthew. The gospel is not a collection of cool stories we tell our kids about Jesus. Matthew is making an aggressive defense of who Jesus was and who he is, and what he accomplished. Matthew is defending the gospel against the very people who killed Christ not some years earlier. He's making an aggressive defense against the people that would end up killing the vast majority of the apostles. So there may be times that we do this, and in order to read it in that context, we'll have times that we slow way down. We'll have times that we use some technical language. And one thing I hope you will notice, if you haven't already, is we will extensively point to the Old Testament, just as Matthew does in this. And the reason is simple. Again, this is the context of the gospel. Matthew is making this defense against the most aggressive, the most belligerent, the most violent of all of Jesus' detractors. So let's remember where we've been so far and look at the purpose for why we've been there, why Matthew decided to do it in this way. First, Matthew walks us through the genealogy of Jesus, pointing out that this fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of who the Messiah would be. These are prophecies and genealogies that the Jews would have been intimately familiar with. Next, we have the quick story of Jesus' birth, again, pointing to Old Testament prophecies. We have the visit from the wise men, King Herod's plot to kill him, uh, his escape from Egypt, or his escape and return to and from Egypt. All of these things fulfilled prophecies that the Jews would have known very well, pointing to Christ being the Messiah. Even in the last text we went through, John the Baptist was fulfilling prophecy when he came out of the wilderness and said, make way a path. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He was saying the Messiah had come, not because they had decided it was, but because the Old Testament pointed to it is Jesus who they're talking about. Jesus came to be baptized by John, not to repent of any sins that he committed, but again to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill all righteousness so that he could die a sinner's death and raise again. He could take on God's wrath for us. He could stand in our place and atone for our sin. And as we saw in, at the very end of Matthew chapter 3, God himself confirms that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. 
when he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So in just a few chapters, Matthew has set the foundation speaking to the Jews. And this foundation is this. Genealogy points to Jesus being the Messiah. The fulfillment of prophecies points to Jesus being the Messiah. John the Baptist points to Jesus being the Messiah. The Holy Spirit confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. God the Father confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. And today we are going to finish Matthew's foundation here with the testing of that. Jesus' response to temptation was the final thing in this foundation that Matthew was setting, that he is the one that the Old Testament pointed to. So tonight, or today, we're going we're gonna to attempt to answer three questions. One, why was Jesus led into the wilderness and tempted? What was the point? Number two, how did Jesus respond to this temptation? And number three, what can we as believers learn from Christ's response to temptation? So our first question, why was Jesus led into the wilderness to be tempted? In order to answer that properly, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. We see the very first temptation by Satan. God had taken man, they had put him in the garden, he had told him to work and keep it, and he had given him one rule. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you will surely die. We, we have a term that you're not going to find in Scripture, but I think it is a very good term that describes what is in Scripture. In Adam, we have what's called a federal head. That at the time, Adam was the representative for all of mankind to come. And we know how this story ends. If we look at Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall eat not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Paul describes the fall of man in this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So sin entered the world through our federal head, through our representative of mankind at the time. And because of that, each and every one of us today have a sin nature. 
It's the reason that Paul can so boldly quote the Old Testament when he says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, and together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That is the result of our representative failing when tempted. Now, don't get it wrong. We fail too every day. We wouldn't have done any better. So Adam, as our representative, failed. He fell to the temptation of the devil. He, and he had everything going for him. If you look at it, Adam didn't face hunger. God told him you can eat of every tree in the garden except for this one. God was not alone. God said it's not good that man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him. And he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while uh, he'd slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its, flesh with, uh, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Adam was put in the best possible situation. He had perfect living conditions. He had no concept of what hunger even was at this point. He had companionship, and he only had a single command, and Adam and Eve failed. They fell to temptation. As we read a few seconds ago, though, Adam, thankfully, was just a type of the one to come. What's described here is a better Adam, one who could fulfill all righteousness, Now, one thing to keep in mind as we go through these temptations today, there is no reason for us to believe that this was the only time Jesus was tempted. As a matter of fact, I think we can make a very good argument that if Jesus was tempted in every way, it would have been more than these three temptations. But where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded in redeeming believers. So let's compare the first Adam with the better Adam. Where Adam was placed in a perfect garden, Jesus was led to the wilderness. Where Adam had access to every type of food, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Where Adam had Eve by his side, he was alone that entire time. Again, Adam placed in the best possible position to succeed. Had every advantage given to him. Adam failed as our representative. But Jesus, on the other side, was given every disadvantage and succeeded. So how did Jesus respond to this temptation? First, we see a period of fasting for 40 days. It doesn't say what happened during that 40 days besides the fasting, but I think we can look at Christ's life and assume that he communed with his Father during that time that he prepared himself for what was coming. He put himself into a state of weakness and hunger, just prime examples for us when we're in those. Is that not when temptation comes on many different areas, when we're angry, when we're hungry, when we're tired? And temptation did come. The first we find in verse 3 of our text. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
So Satan's basically saying, if you are truly the Son of God, there's no need for you to be hungry. Why would, why would the Son of God be hungry? You could turn these stones into bread. You can eat. This test was not a temptation to sin. Because satisfying one's hunger is not, in and of itself, sinful. As a matter of fact, we can look at other places in the Bible that Jesus did use his power to make food out of nothing. It was not sinful then. It would not have been sinful there either. If we look at Matthew 14, we'll see one of these examples, probably the one everyone knows. Because after preaching and withdrawing from the crowd... crowd followed him, and when he went ashore, he saw great crowds, and he had compassion. And they were in a desolate place, and the disciples come back and say, you need to send these people away, because it's desolate. The day's over. They need to eat. Jesus said to collect the food, and there were only five loaves and two fish, and he ends up feeding a 5,000 at that time. This obviously was not sinful. So if it wasn't a temptation to sin, if it wasn't actually a temptation to get Jesus to make food out of nothing, what was it? Satan's purpose here was to appeal to Jesus' supposed right as the Son of God. His attempt was to get Jesus to think, if I'm the Son of God, why would I be starving? To get Jesus to think, as the Son of God, the Father owes me better than what I have right now. Had the Father not provided manna from heaven for disobedient Israel, why is he not providing food for me now? The goal of this temptation was to get Jesus to rebel against the will of the Father. But we can, we can look multiple times in the book of John and see what Christ would have thought of that temptation. In John chapter 4, he write, uh, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In chapter 6, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. Jesus' response to Satan was to quote an Old Testament scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, where this quotation comes from, Moses is reminding Israel all that God had done for them. Moses writes, And you will shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which... You did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make known that, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look at how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is your, yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Paul writes that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he's not saying that it wasn't something that Jesus could accomplish. It's something that Jesus did not feel the need to hold on to. So this temptation of Satan coming and saying, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Act like it. There's no reason for you to be hungry. Christ could have done that if he wanted to, I guess. But that wasn't his purpose. That's not why he was here. Be, it, assuming his full rights as the Son of God, as Paul writes here, was not something that he wished he needed to hold on to, that he had to hold on to. What was more important was humbling himself and doing the will of the Father. The next temptation is found in verses 5 through 7 of our text. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Jesus, in the first temptation, says, I'm, I've humbled myself. I'm going to live by every word that the Lord has spoken. Satan now uses scripture himself, trying to persuade Jesus to put God's love and power to the test. The quotation that Satan uses here is from Psalm 91. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you and guard you in all your ways. He quotes it exactly. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Satan's temptation here is saying, if you are the son of God and you live by every word that comes from God's mouth, prove it. Throw yourself off this. If you are truly the son of God, angels will save you. Force God's hand in proving that you are the son of God. Prove to you, prove to me. Put away any doubt of your sonship. Remove any doubt that anyone could possibly have of who you are. Because if angels are going to lift you up and save you, then you are who you say you are. Again, this temptation was very reminiscent of what happened in Exodus 17. The Lord has done all of these things for Israel, kept them safe in the desert, given them food. And the first time they get thirsty, they complain, and they start testing God. How quickly they forgot that Israel had been freed from hundred years of slavery, that the Lord had raised up Moses and Aaron to save them, that he had sent miraculous plagues to pull them out of Egypt, that he forced the hand of Pharaoh, that he parted the Red Sea, that he resided with Israel in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He made bread fall from the sky for Israel. And yet here they are, they're thirsty, they're going to test God. What did the Lord have to prove to Israel? Nothing. 
Unlike Israel, Jesus saw the truth in this, though. He responded with another quote from Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So Satan had tempted Jesus to appeal to his, to his rights as the Son of God. Then he tempted Jesus to test God to prove who he was. In the last temptation, we have the least subtle of any of it. In chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 8 of our text, again, the, took, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now there's two ways to look at this temptation. One way goes around about like this. Satan attempted to get Jesus to say, this is already mine. Again, leaning on his rights as the son of God. But I believe the better way to interpret this is what he is saying is, is, this is a honest question from Satan. Join me, bow down to me, worship me, and I'll give you all the things your, promise, your father promised you without all the hard work, without the death on the cross, without having to live as this human and be hungry and suffer and preach. And this is one area that I believe so many Christians minimize and that is the actual power and dominion that Satan has. I've met so many Christians that will go back and say, the devil's not real, or hell's not real. I can, I can believe in heaven, I can believe in God, but I can't believe in Satan. But Scripture says clearly his power is a very real thing. His dominion on the earth is a very real thing. John, in, in his gospel in chapter 12, said, Now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That sounds very real to me. Paul in 2 Corinthians, In their case, uh, the God, little g of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sounds very real to me. In 1 John, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What kind of power and dominion does Satan have over the world? Yes, only that which a sovereign God allows. But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What Satan was offering Jesus was an easy way out. What this ultimately did was test Jesus' loyalty to the will of the Father. But Jesus held fast to the will of the Father. He knew what his mission was, even from the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is in the everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We can turn a little bit further in Matthew to chapter 28. Jesus himself says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we all know what comes next, hopefully, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Again, Christ's response to this comes from Deuteronomy. And we can make a parallel again to this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is, is writing to Israel about the time when they would come to the promised land. Moses wrote, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods and gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. But we know the story when they finally come to the promised land. They put together the group of spies. They go out, and their report comes back and says, we can't do it. There's giants. There's all these things. After God has reminded them of exactly what he had done for them, the people feared the people of Canaan more than they feared the Lord. But Christ responds to this temptation. Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And with that, the devil left him, and angels came and were ministering to him. We don't know exactly what that means. I think we can make a pretty good uh, guess for it, that Jesus was fed, that the angels broke the fast that Christ himself refused to break during this temptation. I think we can go back to the story of Elijah being ministered to by angels in 1 Kings chapter 19 and get a pretty good picture of what this looked like. In 1 Kings uh, chapters 19 it says, But he himself, uh, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die. It is enough now, Lord, take, my, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, the angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was uh, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came for a second time and touched him, saying, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. 
short of Elijah saying just, I want to lay down and die, I think we have a pretty good picture of what that ministering looked like after Jesus' temptation. So we, we come to the end of this. The very next section we have is Jesus beginning his public ministry. So again, I want to go draw this line between the first four and a half chapters now. Matthew has laid out a case, and it's a case that is just as valuable for us today. If you want to talk apologetics and go try to defend the gospel and talk about uh, share the gospel, even sharing why people ask all the time, why should I believe in Jesus? Isn't he just a made-up character? We can do exactly what Matthew did. We should point him to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew does it beautifully in four and a half chapters. Historical genealogy points to Jesus being the Messiah. The fulfillment of prophecies points to Jesus being the Messiah. The Holy Spirit confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. God the Father confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. And now Satan's testing proves out that those other things were true. So what we have here is more than just a story. This is an educated, well-thought-out, aggressive defense of who Jesus is. When speaking of the temptations that Jesus had, John MacArthur wrote that Jesus' victory over temptations of Satan demonstrated his divine kingship. It demonstrated his royal power to resist the only other great ruler and dominion in the universe, Satan himself. Christ here won his first direct battle with his great enemy and thereby gave evidence of his glorious right and powers as the king of king and lord of lords the supreme ruler over all of creation. In doing so, he sealed his final victory that was to come. So we're left with our last question today. What can we as believers take away from Christ's response to temptation? I, I, I thought about writing a lot here. I, I did, and then I kept erasing it, and I was like, oh, no, no. Uh, really, I want to go back to the call of worship because I think that is the lesson that we can take away from the temptations of Christ. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, not, uh, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive the mercy and find grace in our, in our, and help in our time of need. As I said at the very beginning, there's no reason to believe that this was the only time Jesus was tempted. But what we do know is that Jesus was tempted no matter how many times. He did so without sin. And he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. And he's going to succeed where each and every one of us fail. In doing so, he became the last Adam, the sacrificial lamb. 
He was able to go to the cross sinless and take on God's wrath for all of us. Therefore, we can have confidence to draw near and receive mercy and grace. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ for salvation, then I would urge you to repent and believe. That is how simple it is. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and turn to Christ. Put your faith in Christ and cry out for salvation. But if you're a believer here today, I would ask you, what do you do in your times of temptation? Do you even know the times that you're being tempted? Do you know when you're falling into temptation? One of the best books, I think, out there on uh, sin and temptation uh, is by John Owens. Actually, there's two of them. A great Puritan writer. And I loosely paraphrase. I'm going to use some quotes here, but loosely paraphrasing. He says, to let us take examples... Let us take our example from Christ. First, live every word that comes from the Lord. Scripture says that the word will not return void, but it'll do a lot of good if you know it before the temptation rather than afterwards. That means hiding Scripture in your heart before temptation. John Owens wrote, temptation is like a knife. It may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. With Scripture, testing is a good thing. Sanctification is a good thing. Without Scripture, temptation is a thing that cuts a man's throat, that is his poison, that is his destruction. Second, spend time in prayer each and every morning. Again, Owen says, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. Let this be one aspect of our daily intercession, saying, God, preserve my soul and keep my heart and all its ways so that I may not be entangled. When this is true in our lives, a passing temptation will not overcome us. We will remain free while others remain in bondage. Number three, don't test the Lord in your temptation. Don't see how close you can get to that line. Don't see how far you can go without sinning. And lastly, fear the Lord more than you love your sin. Owens writes, he makes, a dry, he makes the dry parched ground of my soul to become a pool and my thirsty barren heart as springs of water. Yes, he can make the habitation of dragons this heart which is so full of abominable lusts and fiery temptations to be a place of bounty and fruitlessness unto himself. Go back to that first quote. Temptation can be a knife that will either cut your throat or will cut up your meat for you. So before we close in prayer today, I'll leave you with this a bit of encouragement from Paul. There's no temptation that has overtaken you that is, not un, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will let you, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, he may also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we have. We have the Gospels that so clearly paint the picture of who you are, of who your son is, what your son did, um, our sinfulness, and your holiness, God. Lord, as we continue uh, singing this morning and uh, preparing to take the Lord's Supper, uh, I pray that you would let us contemplate on your word and that you would give us a heart this very day to begin to flee from temptation at every turn. It's in your heavenly precious name we pray. Amen.